Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world including other community radio stations like KCEI 90.1 Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song. We really do appreciate all the work you do. If you're interested in listening to more of Walter's music, walterparks.com is a great place to start. And if you would like to reach out to me, Nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E, Nave at jamesnave.com. And if you'd like to know more about where the name Twice Five Miles comes from, twice5miles.com, where you will find little bits of information that will help you get your work over the finish line. So now let's turn our attention to my guest today, Kieran Fitzgerald. We've known each other for a great number of years, and I'm looking forward to a lively conversation. Kieran lives part of the time in Taos, New Mexico, and the other part in L.A. And today he's in Taos, New Mexico, and even though we are on a Zoom call, we are still not too far from each other geographically. Kieran is a screenwriter. He's a thinker. He's a conversationalist. I know that for sure because I have had more than one good conversation with him. And he's now here in Taos, New Mexico, and doing a lot of work remotely. So, Kieran, thank you so much for joining us for this hour. Thank you for having me, Nave. It's my privilege to be here. So, I would like to start this interview. I mentioned that you are living here in in Taos right now, you've been working for the last number of years in L.A. I know you're a screenwriter and you do lots of work uh, in, in the film business. You spent a great deal of time working in Taos as well as in L.A. I think you've been here for a while. I'd like for you to begin by reflecting a bit on the sense you have of how the work environment is going to be changing for a lot of people who work remotely. And I know maybe some of your friends are coming here as well. So can you give us a flavor of your take on that? And we'll start there and move on into the conversation. My relationship to Los Angeles begins with my parents because my father's an independent producer has been working out of LA since the late 70s. But my mother didn't want to raise children there. So I grew up in the Boston area with the idea that there was something wrong with Los Angeles, perhaps. Um, and or at least that it wasn't a conducive place for education and proper upbringing and that kind of thing. And lo and behold, me and my two brothers, we're all screenwriters now living in Los Angeles, at least two of us are. So my mother's plan didn't quite work. But but um. But I have, over the years, um, as I got into screenwriting myself, I've spent a good deal of time writing outside L.A., first in Austin, Texas, where I lived for many years, and a good deal of time writing in L.A. And I'm in Taos now in part for practical reasons because the pandemic just made Los Angeles a terrible place to live. In addition to the fires and the smoke of last summer, Taos was preferable in terms of quality of living. But I also like writing here. I would say more than I like writing in LA. And I kind of know that now about myself. And the reason is that I find there is for myself a lot more to be had from simply focusing on my own internal pressures, the pressures that I put on myself to do good work. 
And in LA, it's harder to do that because there's so many external pressures. You're surrounded by billboards that remind you of the industry you're attempting to be a part of, right? You're living in a marketplace, in other words. You're trying to make bread and you're surrounded by everybody else selling bread as opposed to, you know, spending time in your own bakery and focusing on the bread itself. That's my bread analogy. I don't mind writing there because I, I like to think of myself as somebody who's capable of writing anywhere. That's an important thing for me. I really strive to achieve the same level of work, no matter what my circumstances are. But if I had to choose, I would be here. And it really does have to do with focusing on, on the pressures I put on myself, which are enough. They're plenty, more than enough, I would say. And they're the right type of pressure too. What I want out of myself is the pressure that generally results in good work as opposed to what other people want out of me or what the billboards want out of me. You work professionally. I know right now you have at least two offerings on Netflix, uh, Wormwood and also the film you were involved in. You were the lead writer on Snowden, which was produced, I think, maybe four years ago. So you're working at a serious professional level. And yet you mentioned these internal pressures and you mentioned the, the good ones that you like to have on you. What about those good ones? What are those good ones? And the reason I'm asking is because a lot of people listen to this show and a lot of people would like to become more deeply involved in writing. I know we've also talked about teaching writing and teaching screenwriting. So what are those good internal pressures that work for you and maybe contrast those good ones, balance it out with what are some of the ones that aren't so good. And I, I went to an MFA program called the Missioner Center for Writers, and I went for fiction, and I spent a good deal of time writing fiction. And that, I think, was instrumental in my education as a screenwriter. At some point during the Missioner Center that I realized the metric by which I could apply the healthiest pressure to myself was simply to say, Let's imagine while I'm writing that I'm also the person in the movie theater watching the movie. And let's see if it's possible to really react to my own writing sentence by sentence in the same way that I would react to it as the viewer months down the line watching the movie in the movie theater, right? In other words, to close the distance between writer and audience in myself as much as possible so that I could have perspective on what I was doing while I was doing it. That, of course, is really hard. That's a kind of lifelong thing, I think, that I certainly have felt myself improving on. I don't think it's possible to perfect because, to some extent, you can't be both at the same time, right? You're toggling back and forth between the two. But I do think, say, you can diminish the distance asymptotically over time between yourself as the writer and yourself as the viewer, in my case, because I'm thinking about the final product, which is going to be a movie in the case of a screenplay. Can I be the viewer while I am also the writer? That's a type of pressure that's really healthy because it means that you're producing something that you want to watch. And that's everything in a way. That is what you can offer the world. You can offer the world a product and if you can stand behind it and say, this is the movie I really want to see, you've succeeded. 
That's not easy to do. And I'm not saying that you get it right on the first draft. You don't. You never do. That's not possible. Over time, you start to require fewer and fewer drafts because you're you're skipping a couple steps. You're seeing around the corner to the movie that you're ultimately going to want to watch as opposed to the one you think you're creating on the page and what you've ultimately created on the page a month later when you pick it up and read it, right? Everyone who's you know attempted writing of any kind knows that. So how can you perhaps diminish that time again so that your reaction to what you've done is much sharper and much quicker? I think that's the, the, the healthiest pressure. That's a provocative idea. When did you first learn that and who did you learn it from or did you just stumble on it on your own? I'm not sure that anyone ever articulated it to me in that way. I suppose it's sort of a psychological reality that I was faced with as an MFA student. And when you're an MFA student, as you know, you're throwing yourself into the lion's den on a weekly basis and getting torn apart by your peers, as you should. And we had very, very accomplished writers come through the Missioner Center, some you know great heroes, people like Ian McEwen, John Kutsia. We had great minds around us. There was one little exercise that maybe flipped a switch for me. And it was something that, that Kutsia did. And he said, I want you to take a page of something iconic. It might've been Moby Dick. It might've been Tale of Two Cities. And I want you to treat it as though your buddy in workshop who you don't like very much just wrote it. In other words, take those pieces of, of literature that we hold in such high esteem and bring them down to the level of the workshop and treat them as malleable, imperfect, entirely fallible attempts. And that was helpful because, I mean, it really drove home the point that everything everyone is doing when they're writing is an ongoing exercise. There is no such thing as perfect work of art or a work of art that stands up to scrutiny in an unassailable way. That doesn't exist. It's not, it's, that's not part of the human endeavor. The human endeavor is, is all about approaching something that feels like it's improved upon and really getting better over time. So that helped a lot. This has to do with my own relationship to movies. I think that I really want to see the thing that I'm writing. I really want to. And generally I know I'm working on the right project. If I'm saying to myself, God, I can't wait to buy a movie ticket to this so I can see it. That kind of excitement also adds to my desire to really put up on screen and the screen in my mind at first, what's going to please me as the audience member. I suppose working backwards from yourself as the future audience member to yourself as the current present writer. And I find that very helpful. So when you are doing this and you do get in the flow or the groove or you catch that wave, so you are able to have the relationship between you, the writer, and then you, the, the future viewer, what kind of feeling comes over your body when that happens? Can you describe that? The, the way to describe it is simply to say that it's what I feel when I'm watching a movie I love. And I know what that feeling is because I fell in love with movies at an early age. I was exposed to a lot of wonderful movies and I have you know, moments I can recall watching certain movies for the first time and certain scenes specifically in those movies that, that made me feel as though 
I had to try and recreate that in some way if I could. In a more kind of, let's say, simpler terms, it's the feeling of tragedy. What does tragedy feel like? That's not necessarily sadness. I'm speaking about tragedy in a more holistic way, tragedy mortality, which again is not sad, that's reality, that's the human condition. What does that make you feel like? If you could stick it into an emotion and feel the tragedy of mortality, what would it be? And and for me, that's something that I have felt myself through films and TV shows as well now, among other experiences. But I think films first and foremost. Sure, you could talk about like a physiological experience, there's some tingling. It is something very dramatic, physiological change in your body that you can experience. Most entertainment doesn't really do that. You know, I don't think this is a particularly common thing to find in a movie, but it does occur and it occurs every year. There are movies that I think can have say, a transcendent effect on the viewer. So you look out for those movies and you, you try and absorb them so that you can recreate the same experience. Can you name a film that you experienced transcendently as an audience member? I mean, the last one would have been a movie called First Reformed, Paul Schrader, who wrote The Taxi Driver famously, Taxi Driver, the Scorsese movie back in the day, and has worked ever since steadily in, in, in screenwriting and directing. He made this movie called First Reform two years ago with Ethan Hawke that was grossly underappreciated. It's amazing. It's a spiritual journey of a man of the cloth in the Northeast. I saw that film and you're indeed right. It really was a transitional, transformational kind of movie. Speaking of transitions and transformations and, and how it's all done, could you spend a little time talking about screenwriting from a, a teaching point of view, a workshop point of view that for the people out there who might be interested in maybe learning more about it? What do you say to people who are wanting to enter this arena. I know you're quite advanced. You've done lots of work. You've been focused on this craft now for many, many years. What can people do if they want to learn about this? How do they start? The thing about movies, period, is that there is no track that you can prescribe. There really isn't. It's not like becoming a lawyer where you go to law school, you take the LSAT, you work hard, and then you're gonna be a lawyer. It's just not the case in movies. Movies much more like the circus. Having talent helps, but also having a relationship with the, you know, the woman who does trapeze might help you too. It's very, very unclear as you're trying to get into it what the right steps are. And even once you do succeed, it's still unclear what the right steps are to make your next project. I mean, Look at Paul Schrader, for example. I mean, I think he won an Oscar for Taxi Driver, and then it was 30 years before he made another movie for which he was nominated for an Oscar and achieved something at that same level. So I think that the main thing is to be willing, to the extent that Hollywood and movie making in general is a casino, because you can have talent, but you have to get lucky. You're going to have a better chance of getting lucky if you just stay in it long enough. And not being disheartened is really hard because you will be disheartened. Maybe you're Morgan Freeman and you don't become successful until you're 50 years old. No one's ever seen Morgan Freeman when he was 19 in a movie because guess what? He was unsuccessful, right? <laughs> so that's the thing to remember is that everyone who you think of as having made it 
went through long stretches of time in which they were completely fallow and the cards were not coming up for them. And that's not a question of talent. You can always be working on your talent, but you have to be willing to stand there in the casino and get unlucky for a long time and maybe then get lucky and then unlucky again and still stay in the casino. I don't know if you can teach that. I don't think you can teach that. That's just sort of something you do or you don't do. What you can teach is getting people to understand what it is they really, really like. Because let's say the safest bet is to really gamble on your own taste. Say, this is what I like. This is the type of movie or the type of TV show I want. I'm going to pursue it. And I'm not going to be distracted by all these other possible avenues. If I don't like horror movies, I'm not going to write a horror movie. I'm going to write what it is that I want to sit in a movie theater and watch. And if you do that and you stick to your own taste, you have a much, much higher chance of success because people will see that. They'll respond to your own confidence in what you like. And they'll say, well, this guy, he's passionate about this type of storytelling. We want to work with him. We want to finance him. We want to find him a director and actors. And people will naturally gravitate toward your work. And that's what you need because filmmaking is collaborative. It requires collaboration. You can't do it alone. I would say above all, that's the thing that's within your control to do is to really know what you like, figure out what you like, and then go for that. You mentioned getting lucky. And I would like for you to tell us a moment in your career when you feel like you got lucky and that moved you forward in the direction you wanted to go in. Yeah, I've gotten lucky on a number of occasions, and I think about that a lot because it's humbling and it puts it all in perspective. And it's important to remember that, that, that luck is a big part of this. I ended up working for Oliver Stone. This was a very good piece of luck. My first job in Hollywood was writing a script for him that, that did not get made, but it was really my private MFA program with Oliver Stone in screenwriting. I landed that job because I'd written a script about some of the Cuban CIA um, who'd been trained to kill Fidel Castro during the Cold War. And it included a lot of characters from Oliver's own projects, his own personal psychic landscape that he felt were important. And he was surprised to see that a young man, 32 years old, cared about James Jesus Angleton, the famous counterintelligence officer for CIA, and Porter Goss. It prompted him to take me under his wing and say, okay, I'm going to bring this kid in. I'm going to do a project with him. And that really got my career rolling because once I was hired by him, you know, other people said, well, Oliver Stone hired this guy. He's probably got something to offer. That's one of the ways in which Hollywood functions, maybe the principal way in which Hollywood functions is through FOMO, the fear of missing out on what someone else is doing. If they're working with Fitzgerald, maybe we, we'd better work with Fitzgerald too, you know, um, whether, whether Fitzgerald is any good or not, right? <laughs> is irrelevant. I think that was an important piece of luck. And it just so happened that he got a hold of this script that really spoke to his own personal interests and his fascination with CIA and the history of American mistakes in intelligence. That's a big part of his own personal study and his own inner life. There are a lot though. I mean, I could go through a long list of moments in which I got lucky. One of the things I learned 
early on from watching my father work as an independent producer, which is, you know, really brutal. All of the relationships you're making along the way can evolve and turn into something that you never imagined over time. So be attentive to the fact that you're, the person you're talking to now may turn out to be your boss in 20 years, or you might be employing them in 20 years. That's the story of Hollywood. Like the circus, they're all in the arena together. And you don't know what the dynamic is going to be 10 years down the line. Maybe right now it's not working with somebody, but you might end up finding a different project with them years later down the line. And that kind of awareness of the need to be diplomatic in your relationships is very important because it is a relationship game too. Pulling back a bit from the bigger relationship games that exist in Hollywood, I'm wondering if you could reflect a bit on where your enthusiasm for all of these characters in the distant past came from, and why are you fascinated with how all of the gears fit together? What draws you to that, and, and how did you do your research on, on, say, Snowden, for example? I watched the show a couple of days ago in preparation for this interview, and it will hold your attention. What did you do, and why are you so drawn to this genre? Wormwood, too, is about this kind of stuff. Quite a lot of the work that I do is focused on stories in, in the past, historical drama, if you will. And there's a benefit for me as a viewer, and this just speaks to my own personal taste, in watching a story unfold about a time period and a set of characters that are not directly related to your own everyday life. And the benefit is that with the remove of time and your exposure to an unfamiliar world, you're more easily able to make the connections between the revelations of that drama and your own life. The stories that resonate most for me are the ones that are least about my own life. Like they don't take place to a 41-year-old man in Taos, New Mexico. <laughs> I like that distance. That's just my taste, though. I think a lot of other people would say, well, no, I, I prefer the stories about people who look exactly like me or, you know, live in my neighborhood. And that, that makes total sense as well. For me, I need the remove. Well, Snowden was a very unique situation because we were dealing with a guy who at the time was under all kinds of various threats, many of them uncertain. And some of them outrageous, you know, Donald Trump, among others, would uh, threaten to kill Snowden with a uh, drone strike when he first showed up in Moscow. And so we needed to interview him in order to make the movie. Both myself and Oliver Stone felt that in order to, to do this film, we were going to have him involved or we weren't going to do the movie at all. And so we spent a lot of time in Moscow with Snowden, but we were interviewing him under very tense circumstances. His future was completely up in the air. There was a security risk, so we had to have security detail. And it was also not an organic process in the sense that Snowden was very reticent to tell his story at all in the beginning. His approach from the outset was, well, look, there's something wrong going on in the country. I know about it. I want people to talk about it, but I don't want my own personal life injected into the headlines. And we had to convince him that his story was going to be injected into the headlines and, and we were the best people, whether he liked it or not. We're offering ourselves as a team that we thought would be a pretty damn good candidate to be his ambassadors to the world. Thankfully, he agreed in the end. But that was a process, and it took a while and wasn't smooth. 
in the beginning. It became more smooth later once it was all rolling and he got used to the idea that we were going to be making a movie about his life. This was going to happen. And then he started to really freely participate. We wanted his participation. We needed his participation. In order to sell in an authentic way his life story, we needed his involvement because the world in which he's working, it's not like you can pick up a textbook and find out what culture is like inside the NSA. They keep it secret for a reason. So you need to talk to the people who live it. It was one of the greatest pleasures for me. It was working with him because I found him to be an extraordinary guy at many levels. I'm very grateful for that experience. Whenever you're dealing with a living subject, and I have a, a couple of projects with, with living subjects right now, you're also trying to figure out, it's a balancing act between what's good for the story and what's good for the subject. And they're not always the same thing. And that's very tricky. Oliver Stone has been in the middle of that quagmire his entire life, which is why after he made the doors, the doors sued him because they didn't like the way they were represented. They thought it was inaccurate and, you know, Oliver didn't care. This is what he felt the movie should be. And that's a sort of extreme example of how these things can shake down. And there's no right answer, of course. You know, I mean, at what point is someone's story no longer theirs? Sure, there are various laws, you know, that we have, entertainment laws and things like that. But the truth is, there's no answer to that question. In the end, we all die and anyone can tell our stories. Um, <laughs> there's no stopping that. <laughs> when the movie Snowden concluded, you were able to move from the actor to Snowden. It was seamless. As I was watching it a couple of days ago, I, I couldn't quite tell if you'd done it or not. And then I realized that you had in the, the scene when he's giving his TED talk as a robot. That's when I realized, oh, my gosh, they switched over to yeah. Snowden rather than the actress. I thought that was a really nice way of of moving into the reality of Snowden's life. As you worked with him, did he soften because he felt secure with you? Did a friendship emerge out of this or? Yeah, definitely. Let's put it this way. I, it was, I think, a comfort to him that I was there as a ambassador of his generation. In some ways, my job to be the translator between what Snowden was saying and, and Oliver's understanding of the world. And that was critical part of this process because Snowden, of course, spent his life living and breathing as a digital native. Computers are, are his home. The internet is his home. And, and that's part of why he felt so strongly about the domestic surveillance programs that he was determined to reveal to the American public because he felt it was the equivalent of a violation of the Fourth Amendment, you know, illegal search and seizure of your home. That's something the federal government's not allowed to do. Well, he felt the internet had been illegally searched in the same way that a physical house might be illegally searched. I needed to create an avenue of communication between him and Oliver that would facilitate this process. That was a big part of what I was doing. And writing the script, of course. Snowden and Stone spoke completely different languages. Yeah, totally. Is that correct? And you were the bridge between the two. I was the bridge. On that note of being a bridge, Kieran, I'd like to pause for just a moment, if you don't mind, and take a station break. And to say to those out there listening, you are tuned in to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering 
I'm your host, James Nave. This show is always broadcast first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world. And this show is also heard on other community radio stations as well, like Cultural Energy Radio, KCEI 90.1 in Taos, New Mexico. So we are getting a bit of a range. My Email is nave at jamesnave.com, nave at jamesnave.com, nave is spelled N-A-V-E. If you would like to reach out to me, I would love to hear from you. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song, walterparks.com, if you're interested in listening to more of Walter's music. If you would like to know more about some of the other projects I'm doing, twice5miles.com is a good place to look. There you'll find little bits of information that will help you get your work over the finish line, plus some insider information about how Twice Five Miles, the name, came to be. It comes from a poem, if you are interested in that. So now let's return to our conversation with Kieran Fitzgerald. If you're just now tuning in, Kieran is a screenwriter, and when we left off, Kieran and I were talking about his work on the film titled Snowden, which you may have seen, and if you haven't seen it, you can view it on Netflix if you like. Snowden. It's about Edward Snowden. You may know that name. So let's get back to the conversation. So, Kieran, as you did your work on the film Snowden, which is a very important film, I watched it, and it is, it is as relevant as it was when I watched it the first time. As you went through this process yourself, how did it change you? How did it develop your confidence, and where did it lead you? Where did it point you? I'm probably still figuring that out. Uh, <laughs> movies are a little bit like relationships. You get to the end of them, even the good ones, and you want to move on, even if they've been really good experiences, and Snowden was. It's important to strike out and find new fertile ground, uh, like the title of your show. That's what I've done. You know, Hollywood will often take somebody who's just made a movie about football that was really successful and say, well, I've got three other projects about football lined up for you. And the thing I think is important, at least for me to do, is say, I'm not interested in football anymore. I did that. Now I'm going to move on and do something else. I was presented, for example, with the story of Ross Ulbricht as a possible movie project right after Snowden. Ross was the creator of The Silk Road, which you may know is the enormous online black market. He's now in jail. I hope the movie gets made, but I turned it down because it was too close to what I had just done in terms of what the challenges were likely to be. How do you dramatize one person's story through a digital landscape? I, I would have essentially been facing those same challenges. And I wanted new challenges. And I certainly have them now, but it took a while for me to find the new ones that I wanted because the great projects don't just drop in your lap. Snowden was another bit of luck. I mean, Snowden happened in the world and we jumped on it, but we certainly didn't create the event of Edward Snowden going to journalists. You know, you have to have your ear to the ground at all times and read a lot, expose yourself to as much news as you can, and not just current news, but news of the past, right? What are the great stories of the past that are going to be most relevant now? You know, and that's one of the things that I focus on a lot, because sometimes the news today is actually not going to get at 
current events as well as a story from 50 years ago. That's what I've done now. I, I have a number of projects and many of them are period pieces that I think address current issues in a really provocative way. Are you at liberty to tell us about something? Sure. Yeah, no, sure. I'm, um, for example, I have a, a project right now that we will hopefully be presenting to the world shortly. And it's a TV series called Cuba Confidential. It's really about the relationship between CIA and, and Cuba over the duration of the Cold War, but starting in the 1950s in the pre-revolution era in Havana. And the reason I think it's relevant today is that it's a culture clash story. It speaks to all these very shifting ideas about who's allowed to tell whose story right now. It's a big question. And one of the ways in which America as a country was so oppressive was by going into smaller countries and saying, I'm going to tell your story. I'm going to tell you who gets to be in charge. I'm going to, I'm going to create a coup, for example. If I don't like your current president, I'm going to put someone else in charge. It is a way in which we basically dominated the political narratives of entire countries, especially in Latin America. And much of that history isn't known to the American public and, and certainly hasn't been dramatized well in television. And so I'm hoping to do that on a big scale. And that's a project that we have with the creators of Homeland come on board to, to produce it with us. So when you say a big scale, can we expect uh, maybe two or three seasons of the show? Yeah, or more if it's successful. You know, I mean, that, the, the question of how long a show lasts is very much determined by whether or not people like the first season, you know. And where will it appear? We don't know yet. We don't know yet. But I'll let you know. I'll let you know. As soon as I do know, you'll be the first to know. The name Edward Bernays, does that mean anything to you? Yeah, for sure. I know about him from this wonderful documentary that maybe you know, The Century of the Self. I um, know that documentary well. I've watched it three times. Yeah. And for the people out there listening, the name Edward Bernays may not mean a thing to you. Edward Bernays was the grandfather, the father, the inventor of public relations. He was Sigmund Freud's nephew and came to the States in the 20s and created the advertising business and was responsible for more than one coup, if I recall correctly. Yeah, he was. He was very much a part of the coup in Guatemala that was orchestrated by CIA. It served to spark this whole era of incredible hubris on the part of the American government, the American intelligence apparatus. It wrecked havoc around the world. The idea that we could walk into any country and simply change up the leadership and create a puppet dictatorship that we would control in order to benefit our own companies, of course. In the case of Guatemala, it was the United Fruit Company. Later, of course, oil was at stake. And, you know, we know how that panned out. But it's a story that has an origin. And it's important to talk to dramatize that origin. So the Guatemalan coup is actually part of the show that I've written as well. Because one of the main characters was the CIA officer who was responsible for that coup. You know, I mean, I think that this is a, a good time to look at and dramatize the ugliness of our past. It's important, you know, it's important not to, to sort of sweep it under the rug and say we did bad things, but to really look at it and say, this is why it happened. These are the people who did it. Because I think that provokes a higher level of education 
uh, when you really look at your past in, in seriousness, then you can really have a chance at correcting your, your course as a country. And that's very much what we're in the middle of is a course correction as a country. But I don't think you do that by sort of ignoring everything that happened before or just sort of categorizing it all as evil. I don't think that's the way forward. Um, I, I, I agree with you. If you're listening and you're wondering about that show that we mentioned, The Century of the Self, you can find that on YouTube. It's a four-hour BBC documentary. I think it was made 15 years ago now. It's, it's old, really, but it, it's comprehensive, and it covers all of the ground, and it'll give you a great background on why we respond the way we do to the advertising that comes across our screen today, right now. The last time you looked at your Facebook page, there's something going on there besides a chat with your friends and advertising and influencing. And that all rose out of the work that Edward Bernays did in the 1920s forward. And of course, the show Mad Men also covers a lot of that as well. So the century of the self, if you'd like to connect more with that, you can find it on, on YouTube. So Kieran, you were saying that you were the digital translator between Snowden and Stone. And today I was reading in the New York Times an enthusiastic article about where Hollywood is going and, and, and movie makers are going with the podcast business. Are you keeping up with that? There's a lot that's being talked about now in terms of creating great content as podcasts. Yeah, no, at least two of the projects I have will be podcast first and then scripts. And I'll be writing the script, but I'm involved in the podcast step as well. It's not a new idea for Hollywood. I'm glad it's happening because I love podcasts myself. Back when we all used cassette tapes, I was a, an audiobook aficionado and I would listen to audiobooks. The idea in Hollywood is essentially to own a piece of intellectual property. And now podcast is another option, but it, it has always been the case that Hollywood is really interested in laying claim to a book, an article, a short story as a piece of intellectual property from which they can develop a TV show or a movie. And what a lot of people are realizing is that in the age of social media, it's very often the case that a movie or TV show gets made because, it's all, because the story is already popular. And podcast stories have the ability to become very popular very quickly. They can go viral fast. And so Hollywood can look at the popularity level of a podcast and say, well, I've already got a pretty high level of certainty that this project is going to get people excited as a TV show or movie because they're already familiar with the podcast. That's about branding. It's the reason that a Lego movie happened, right? A Lego movie happened because kids play with Legos, millions of them. So you've already got a built-in audience. You know, not to sound cynical about this, but it's important to understand what, what's the actual end game here for Hollywood. The end game is to try and hedge your bet. I'm going to dump millions of dollars into a project. I want to be as sure as I can, this is what studio executives are saying, that, that there's going to be an audience for it. By seeing that pod, at a podcast is already successful and has X number of, of listeners, they say, well, that will translate to viewers. And that's why it's happening. It's also a great art form as well, a fantastic way to tell a story. It dovetails with 
the age of distraction, which is what we live in, right? People are doing seven things at the same time, which makes it easier to listen to a story than to read, which really requires you to be present and not also cooking and playing with your phone. And that's a big part of the, the reason for its success as well as, as an art form. Audio is very powerful, much more powerful than I think people have given it credit for. And, and in movies, it's one of the most powerful elements of a movie, the sound design and the music and all of that you get through a podcast. Um, so yeah, I know it's exciting. It's an exciting moment for sure. And I know a number of companies that will go out into the world and they'll create podcasts and then own the property rights, own the podcasts and convert that to a TV show or a movie. What are some of the podcasts that have been made into movies that people might know? There's a podcast called Homecoming, a TV show, Julia Roberts. Yep. That was very successful, very popular. And there are a lot of them happening right now that people are about to see coming out in the next year. It's a good thing because it also, it does democratize storytelling, uh, which is good. It's very good. Because even though Hollywood is looking to see how popular the podcast is, to make a podcast is not that expensive. So lots of people can make podcasts. And then if you make a good one, you know, just like if you make a good YouTube video, you know, your phone's going to ring. I have a good friend who's a director from Uruguay, for example, made a 10 minute short film and put it up on YouTube. And literally a week later, he was Hollywood working on a major movie as a director. It, it can happen that fast. What's the name of your friend's film on YouTube? His name, his name is Fede Alvarez. He's made a number of very successful horror movies now. He does horror movies. Uh, Don't Breathe. He did the remake of Evil Dead, the Sam Raimi movie. And um, his entire career was born out of a 10-minute short that he put up on YouTube. It's, it was just so well done. No one could believe that the special effects were all created by one kid in, in an apartment in Montevideo, Uruguay. And, and his career was born overnight. That's a great thing. That's a great aspect of the circus, I would say, is the ability for real talent to rise very quickly to the top. Then sustaining yourself up there is another thing, but it is possible. Yeah. So as we come to the end of our time together, and I'm thinking of your friend who made the 10-minute movie on YouTube, he... I imagine, stayed very true to his own creative tone. And it seems like the theme that has emerged during our conversation here today is, is just that. You talked about how when you write, you try to put yourself in the place of the viewer. I imagine when you write for a podcast, you put yourself in the place of a listener because the images happen in the mind. So maybe the best tip for all of us is just to somehow when we're trying to do this work no matter what level we're working on beginners or advanced in the professional realm if you can somehow stay true to your own tone you will likely be very happy with what you do and maybe have a much better chance at getting noticed increase your luck if you will yes yes no i think that's right i think that's right i mean it's a form of being true to yourself it starts with, with having the awareness to know what it is that you like to begin with and reflecting on it. Take a second and say, what are my favorite movies? Why are they my favorite movies? You know, that's important to be able to define and articulate your own taste. Well, Karen Fitzgerald, I really appreciate you taking the time to reflect on the work that you're doing and 
I've the work I've seen that you do is just wonderful. And I, I'm looking forward to more from you. I know that's that it's all coming. So thanks for, for taking the time to, to be with us. And if someone wanted to get in touch with you, do you have a, a website or anything like that? I haven't done a website. I am open to being contacted by email. My email is k-o-d-e-f-i-t-z at gmail.com. And thank you for talking, Nava. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it too. And if you'd like to reach out to Kieran and you forget his email, my email is nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. You can reach out to me and I'll be happy to connect you with, with Kieran. So once again, thank you, my friend, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you too, Kieran. I appreciate it as well. So there you have it, my friends. Kieran Fitzgerald talking about his process as a professional screenwriter. We do have a bit of time before the top of our hour, which I would like to fill with thoughts on going to the movies. And I'd like to start by offering you the soundtrack from the trailer of the film Kieran and Oliver Stone worked on title Snowden. Best I can tell, you've been walking around two broken legs for weeks. When do I go back? You ever again land on those legs of yours, those bones will turn to powder. Plenty other ways to serve your country. You want it to be special forces? Yes, sir. Why do you want to join the CIA? I'd like to help my country make a difference in the world. The average test time is five hours. I'm done, sir. It's been 40 minutes. 38 minutes? What should I do now? Whatever you want. The deputy director of the NSA offered me a new position. Can you tell me anything about it? <laughs> you know I can't. Find the terrorist in the internet haystack. You're making people very happy. Thank you. You ready for a little action? Oh, this looks juicy. How is this all possible? Think of it as a Google search, except instead of searching only what people make public, we're also looking at everything they don't. Emails, chats, SMS, whatever. Yeah, but which people? The whole kingdom, Snow White. The NSA is really tracking every cell phone in the world. Most Americans don't want freedom. They want security. Except people, they don't even know they've made that bargain. Are they watching us? There's something going on inside the government that's really wrong, and I can't ignore it. I just want to get this data to the world. Hey, hey. I feel like I'm made to do this, and if I don't do it, then... I don't know anybody else that can. This is everything I have. They're gonna figure out what I've done. Did you access an unauthorized program? The government knows that we have these documents now. You're looking at a possible death sentence. I can't turn back from this. Watch yourself. We are running out of time. They're gonna come for me. They're gonna come for all of you too.
That was the soundtrack from the movie trailer for Snowden, written by Kieran Fitzgerald and Oliver Stone. I enjoyed that film, which you can view on Netflix if you have a Netflix account. So I encourage you to enjoy watching it. I have always loved the movies. When I was growing up in Asheville, North Carolina, which is where this show originates from on WPVM-FM on Wall Street in downtown Asheville. When I was growing up in Asheville, I loved going to the movies. There were two movie theaters in Asheville at the time. This was during the 50s and the 60s. One was called the Imperial, next to the S&W Cafeteria, and the other theater was called the Plaza Theater, which was on the square, which is now where the Diane Wortham Theater sits. Prior to the Diane Wortham Theater, years ago, it was the Plaza Theater. So on Saturday afternoons, when I was a boy, I would either go to the Imperial or to the Plaza. And I remember the Plaza especially being an attractive theater for me because on the side they had wooden chairs and I could lean back in the wooden chairs and watch the movies. And I would watch films. I remember one called Old Yeller. You can view it on YouTube if you like. It's a about a boy living somewhere maybe in the Appalachians, I think. I don't remember, but maybe, in, in, certainly in the country. And he had this dog called Old Yeller. And Old Yeller was his favorite dog. And if you've ever had a pet, a cat or a dog, especially now during COVID time, you know very well how easy it is to become very close to a pet. And it doesn't really have to do with the pandemic. People have loved their pets for years and years and years, forever. This was the case in Old Yeller. The boy loved his dog. And I don't even remember what the dog's name was. Maybe it was Old Yeller, I suppose so. And as the movie goes on, the boy faces a very big dilemma, a dilemma like we all face. His dog gets sick, and he has to decide how he's going to handle his dog's illness, what he's going to do, how he's going to do it, how he's going to handle it, what is the best thing he can do for his beloved dog. And the dog loved him, and he loved his dog. So when you love something, what do you do with it? How do you do you handle it? Well, I loved going to the movies. So not only did I enjoy Old Yeller, but I enjoyed all kinds of other movies as well. And Honestly, Old Yeller is the only one of the bunch I really remember, although I must have seen the westerns and I must have seen the other great movies that came through the theaters during that time. Of course, the Imperial Theater and the Plaza Theater were very active when I was going to high school in my teenage years. We also had the Drive-In, the Dreamland Drive-In Theater. It was on Tunnel Road, before the open cut ever existed, while Boquetra Mountain was still there. For those of you listening to this outside of Asheville, the open cut was what happened when Interstate 40, or I-240, the extension from I-40, came through Asheville. And instead of building a tunnel through the historic Boquetra Mountain, the state decided to just take the whole mountain down, which they did. 
They started by cutting all the trees off the mountain and then slowly bulldozing down through the soil to the granite rock, exploding it with dynamite and then hauling the whole thing away, leaving the open cut, which is there to this day, beside the tunnel, which is the main route we took to the Dreamland Drive-In Theater when we were in high school. And of course, going to the drive-in is a very different experience than going to the theater like the Imperial or the Plaza. You drive, you pull into the theater, you, you drive up on the little mound and you hook the speaker onto the car window. Nowadays, drive-in theaters actually are coming back into popularity, I've read, because of COVID-19. People are going back to the drive-ins. I suspect now when you pull into the drive-in theater, you don't have to hang the speaker on your window. I'll bet you you can Bluetooth right into the movie and maybe even watch Snowden on the Dreamland Drive-In Theater in your town, if indeed there happens to be a Dreamland Drive-In Theater or a Drive-In Theater at all. So I remember going to the Dreamland. But of course, as time moves on, just like in the movies, things end. The Imperial Theater closed in Asheville. The S&W cafeteria next to it also closed. The Plaza Theater eventually was torn down and replaced by the Asheville Art Museum, which houses the Diana Wortham Theater. So things change, and the movie screens come and go. And now in Asheville, the movie screens are, are abundant. I don't know how many, 50, 60 movie screens around town, all of which are opening up now, back again, after a, a year of, of pandemic closure. So the movies are coming back. And of course, we've all been watching the films on our small screens. Nothing like a small screen to bring you close to the action, and yet there's really nothing like the big screen and the theater and the popcorn and the candy and all of that to bring you close to another kind of experience, which is the movie-going experience that we all enjoy, or at least most of us do. I certainly do. So Imperial Theater, the Plaza Theater, both in downtown Asheville in the 60s and the 70s, you know, and the 50s. I don't remember exactly when they all closed, but I do remember feeling a bit of grief when that happened, when they, they went away. And it was an uh, end of an era, an end of Americana era. And, of course, the beginning of a new era. And we're in that new era now. So I really am thrilled to have spent this hour immersed in a conversation about going to the movies. I was a boy, as I said, in the 50s and the 60s, and I wanted to be a film director. That never happened for me. But I did become an enthusiastic audience member. I'm not a movie specialist. I don't know all the ins and outs of the, of the movies. I'm more just simply an appreciator who sits in the 14th row back, the middle of the theater on an afternoon, hopefully not too many people in the room, and waiting for the movies just to appear on the big screen. So it's all about the imaginative process, which is such a wonderful thing to have in our lives. So I just want to thank you ever so much for going to the movies with us during this hour. I appreciate it, and I hope you do too. And 
I appreciate what Kieran had to say about how much hard work one has to put into the business of making a screenplay, writing the thing, and then getting it made. So I hope our time together has given you some insight into how a screenplay is made. A story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Your story, whatever you have to tell, certainly has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and I'll bet you have more than one to tell. And screenwriting and creating screenplays is certainly a wonderful way to tell it. If you've never done it before, there are a lot of resources online you can study and work with and figure out how a screenplay is made. If you would like for me to send you some information on on how it's done, nave at jamesnave.com, I'd be glad to send you a PDF on just how all of this works. It's a series of screenwriting notes titled Sager Notes, written by Dr. Linda Sager. So if you're interested, I'll be happy to connect you. Nave at jamesnave.com or twice5miles.com also has some information about that too. Screenwriting, telling your story. It's a worthy endeavor, even if you have to get up an hour early in the morning to make it happen. So on that note, I would like to say that you have been listening to Twice 5 Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. Always airing first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7. Streaming online, WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville, heard all over the world. And this show is also heard on other community radio stations like Cultural Energy Radio, KCEI out of Taos, New Mexico. And thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song. If you'd like to hear more of Walter's music, WalterParks.com is a good place to start. If you would like to reach out to me, Nave at JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. And I'd like to thank Divi Dial for all the good work she does at WPVMFM. Most especially all the good work she and PJ Ewing recently did on our new website, wpvmfm.org, if you'd like to view our new website offering. Oh, and by the way, if you'd like to know more about Twice Five Miles and what all that means, twice5miles.com is a good place to look. And with that, it's time to say thank you ever so much for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio. Here's a little poem tidbit to say goodbye on by E.E. Cummings. Love is the voice under all silences, the hope which has no opposite in fear, the strength so strong, mere force is feebleness, the truth more first than sun, more last than star. Once again, thanks so much for tuning in. Please do tune in again next time. Until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.